Hello everyone and uh, welcome to Barton Wilmore Uncut in Conversation. It's under the, uh, the banner of hashtag let's find a way. We're back for our third podcast. Um, this is an accidental series and, and it's accidentally the third time there. Um, and we're here to discuss a whole range of issues that we're faced by the, the planning and development sector. We're bringing together colleagues and friends to chat in a, an informal way. Imagine it like a pub. Um, and we call it uncut because it is literally without any editing. So uh, we're still working on that theme tune, I think. But um, So normal health warnings do apply. My name's Robin Shepherd. I'm a partner at Barton Wilmore. And the last episode, we gave our guests the opportunity to, uh, to be absolute control freaks and be Secretary of State for the day. What would they do? And I have to say, they didn't disappoint. Um, if you've not had the opportunity to, to listen, then please do. Um, now we're going to turn our attention to the topic um, and the issue of health and um, it's Mental Health Awareness Week. And our urban environments obviously have a huge impact on the way we live and as a consequence, our mental health and well-being. So we thought we'd spend a bit of time looking at a bit of a, a hypothesis that as we plan urban environments that respond to the immediate challenge of social distancing, we have the opportunity to completely transform urban space and how we occupy it. And the crisis we're currently exposed to has really shone a spotlight on social inequalities across the UK, um, but in particular in our urban environments. Urban layout, urban form, it can all play a huge role in addressing this. Um, but we obviously have to prioritise um, our interventions and the changes in our approach. So today, joining us in the virtual pub, as it were, we've got some great guests which I'm excited to introduce to you. We have Josh Artis from Centric Lab, who is co-founder and director. Um, Josh has a particular interest in neuroscience and, and urban data in the health sphere and, and I have to say much of uh, Josh what Josh says understand um, some of which is well beyond my my intellect so I'm, I'm delighted to introduce Josh to us and um, also we have Helen Richardson from Charles and Hamlins she's a sister there but her background is is in environmental science um, and particular perspective on the topic we've got today so again I'm delighted to welcome Helen we then have uh, Mark Southgate who is chief executive Moby. Moby is a charity focusing on improving design, in particular housing design. Um, and then we've got Ben Kite, who's Managing Director of EPR. And Ben's particular focus is on the interface between wildlife and the urban environment. And then finally, but by no means least, we have my, uh, my colleague Barry Williams, who's Director of All Things Design at Barn Wilmore. Um, apparently he's also an active uh, cyclist as well, so we've got a particular uh, sort of particular emphasis on that. So welcome you all to today's podcast. Hi Robin. Hello. Thanks Robin. The question we've got for you today, um, if you're willing to, to answer, is what would be your national priority if you were to deliver long-term change um, to enhance urban life and to ensure it better supports our mental well-being? Um, that's the question, and it's probably going to go in all sorts of directions. So for the next 15, 20 minutes or so, we're just going to let the conversation flow and see where it leads us. I'm sure, Ben, do you want to, do you want to take us in the direction you want to, to start and others can disagree with you? Sure, absolutely. Um, I think my one change would be to challenge the sort of um, box thinking that's um, dominated planning for, for so many years, where we have tend to think about um, things in categories. Um, you know, this is the residential area, uh, this is the green infrastructure, this is the commercial area, etc. I think this has all played into um, the way in which we leave, leave our mo lead our modern lives, which is you know, very linear. We, most of us live in this sort of narrow linear corridor between 
where we work and where we live going sort of shuttling backwards and forwards and there's very little capacity to go off that path and explore and that leaves large parts of our our psyche unused and i I don't think that's healthy it means that we're always thinking about tomorrow rather than today and 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 being being cognizant of the things around us and as a consequence all these sort of health interventions your mindfulness have have grown as a way to cure that and make us feel better you know ecotherapy you've heard all these terms um i think if we break down those barriers between the categories a little bit and we invite the natural world into the place that we live uh, and stitch it all together a bit better and then we'll live in a more complex rich and stimulating environment that'll be healthier for everybody it'll encourage people to get out more it'll encourage you to spend more time in the moment rather than thinking about tomorrow and and i think it'll be good for everybody yeah i think that from my from uh, my perspective uh, oh hello by the way, yeah, it's great to be in this. <laughs> it's great to be in this pub without booze, but you know you can't have anything. <laughs> Feel free. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think it's a really interesting point about how planning zones and boxes things in because it's easy to deal with. Uh, and I think it's been a really interesting time over the last two months where we've taken the zone of residential and we've sprinkled on working within that zone. But I think what's interesting is. The flip side of that, if you take places like business parks, for example, which are solely about working, solely about employment, you know, what's the opportunity for sprinkle, sprinkling living and residential within those? So they become uh, what, our, what our communities have become now, which is vibrant parts of the city, you know, where you get that kind of um, uh, those ideas and those creative collisions that you get within the city. I think that's a, it's a really interesting point. And I think it's almost looking at those business parts. What are the qualities of those places? It's green infrastructure, you know, quite often brilliant sustainability credentials, uh, you know, um, a sprinkle of mix of uses. You know, what happens when you put uh, residential and living into those environments? How much better can they become as they take some of those qualities and add that vibrancy that people bring to it? So I, I quite like to pick up on what sort of Barry and Benner said. And I, think the word, I was going to use a word rather than one thing. Uh, and the word is space, which isn't very surprising for a planner, really. But it's around, we have, we're coming out of the, hopefully coming out of the, the COVID crisis with a much better understanding of things around space. Yeah. So internal space, obviously, because we spent a lot of time in it and we spent a lot of time in one, in one place. And we probably compared how we use that to other places like the work on that linear corridor you were talking about, Ben. Uh, and whether we need to be there quite as much, uh, I'm, I'm convinced I don't need to be there as quite as much. It could be m- much more effective, but actually the outdoor space as well, um, and how important that is in terms of mental health and well-being, that access to green space, that access to clean air, those sort of things. Um, and yet, we've also got to connect. The other words I've used are, are sort of around vitality and connectivity, which are very much part of the city. So how do we bring all of those things together? And that's quite a challenge in an environment where we might have to isolate ourselves a bit more or public transport becomes more of a challenge. But nevertheless, those are the components we've got to think about. And I think it means we need to challenge ourselves constantly. Uh, planners challenge ourselves around whether the model we've created is working. I think it isn't. Um, and, and whether, you know, that, that business park, whether you've created that in a different way and created some space which is accessible by the business park but surrounding communities, that is a better place and better planning and better community. So I think that's why I want to come out. You know, take this perspective, which is unique, um, and this crisis above, which often, you know, big crises create major advancements in public health, and think about how we use those two things to just create a better world on the other side. 
I want yeah. to uh, just follow Mark's point about uh, just put channeling some uh, historical physicists and saying you focused on space I'm going to focus on time um, and the idea of time particularly <laughs> for what you were saying you know when we were speaking just before and just now you, you know what you've really talked about is going from A to B in the rigidity of those functional services we've lost the art of the flaneur in our in our built environment the ability as a reading here to wander with no purpose and to wander with no purpose to discover and to learn and when you see children play in the truest sense they're problem solving by understanding how to mediate everything from nature what does this is it soft to stand here is it tough can we fall this can we grab this and we've lost that freedom and i think um you know for us when looking at the concept of time in cities um, you know, what would I like to see change? Obviously, this is actually what we're working on because it's, well, if we want it, we're going to work for it. But to separate the concept of health from political boundaries. Um, and a, a good example of this is actually Transport for London's what they call PTEL score. So this isn't something that's defined by borough or political or ward or whatever boundary or a red line on a development site. It's a very democratic way to understand uh, the accessibility of transport from any given point within London. And so so if we can understand that from a health perspective, from any given point, what is the accessibility of health provisions, whether it be environmental, physical, social, infrastructure based, we can start to see where our inequalities lie and where they may fall within certain guidelines and understand what are the levers to pull. So for me, it's yes, we're working on the space time continuum there, Mark. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I like, um, you know, I like what Ben was talking about in relation to the sort of linear corridor. Uh, you know, just from a spatial sense, I suppose, at the moment, that's a sort of very uh, binary experience, isn't it? You, you're trying to go from A to B, from your house to work very quickly. You know, you come out the front door, you get in your car, you pop out of work. Uh, but I think the function of that corridor, the function of the street has, has been challenged over the last uh, couple of months. You know, what are the priorities of that street? Is it now becoming uh much more about um a place for physical activity you know a place that will help with um mental well-being cycling and walking starting to be the priority you know we're starting to think about in, in a sense designing the street from the outside in rather than starting with the road and then you end up with some cycle paths and a bit of pavement the time has come when we're starting to designing it in, in a completely different direction so you start with the green environment you start with um, active travel modes and you end up at the bottom of the hierarchy with the car and trying those streets then become what they should be in my opinion which are very social spaces where different experiences happen and you bump into different people and you talk to people and you communicate I, I think that's I, a lost art at the moment I think what you're describing Barry could potentially create quite a, a virtuous circle because um, the more the more people um, start to interact with their environment and gain value from it and um, the more they're going to care about it and that has the potential to help solve the sort of the, the ecological crisis that's taking place at the moment as people begin to begin to notice what's around them and, and to, to, to care for it and in turn that that will improve and then deliver back to them in terms of health benefits and a better better lifestyle better experience so that the whole thing you know we can, we, we can really reverse this downward spiral that we've been experiencing for for so long and i think we've got some choices here as well that's the other the, the great thing we've now seen how different it can be so those streets yeah. which are no yeah. longer dominated by car where people come out and clap at eight o'clock on a thursday evening or i saw a wonderful film with some uh, a, a sort of a community in birmingham where some indians were playing banger and actually a mixed community of all sorts of races were dancing to that banger music you just think that's great and actually we could try and keep that or we could just go back to normal and do our linear world and get in a car and uh, and we'll have lost so much 
Helen, I can feel you itching to get into the conversation <laughs> here. You're very patient. I know. I was waiting for my, my input there. Um, yeah, the, the priority that I would look at would be improving air quality. And I think that links with what everyone has spoken about so far and whether that's how we design our streets, if we design our streets in a way that focuses on cycling and walking and getting to places in a way that's not using cars, then the air quality improvements will be a, a natural sort of consequence of that which then people will start to realize um, which they have been realizing over the, the past few weeks and months as um, as we've all been locked down and not being able to use these fossil fuel transports that we've been so used to using and you know which we have always perceived as improving our quality of life you know if you think well I've got my car so I can easily just drive two miles to the supermarket and so I can go to this supermarket and not this supermarket and, and I think there's a lot of um, decision making that people have been forced to to change and to to reassess and um and again, it, it looks at how people are spending more time within their local areas and whether that's going out on a Thursday night to clap with your neighbours and being able to see the neighbours across the street because there's not loads of cars driving past or whether when that's people are going out to take their daily exercise and um, they've been forced. Well, I know from my own personal uh, experience, I've, I usually go somewhere to take my exercise so I'll sort of go to my in-laws house so that I can run along the beach there um, rather than trying to find what's on my doorstep and so it's been forced me to find what's on my doorstep and there's so much green space around here that's a mile or so from the house that I've never really enjoyed before and, it, and it's there and and whilst I have been out and taking my exercise and appreciating it all and sitting in the garden and, and enjoying the space I have it, it, the, the air quality issue has has also been quite noticeable and, uh, and a few people some of the neighbors even have pointed it out to me and these aren't people who are environmental scientists or planners they're, they're people who just live on the same street who've said oh doesn't doesn't the sky look blue you know it's amazing how you can sort of see further over the landscape than you could previously and so I think that's something that I would I would prioritize Helen, can I, I ask you a question? Go on, Josh, go on. Can I ask you a question that has a slightly long intro, if that's okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> because, well, I was asked on, I think I was asked onto this conversation because of the work we do from a scientific lens, but uh, the way that we ingest air pollution is not equal for all of us. And there is a, a thing essentially called susceptibility. So, uh, you know, I am a middle-class, strong, athletic, white male. I, the, my ability to mitigate levels of air pollution uh, because of my life effectively and my, my agency is very good. But there are people whose susceptibility to different levels of air pollution is is far weaker as in their their ability for it to impact and kind of actually mess up their internal systems and cause consequential impacts is far greater in that way so uh, you know we we currently have a number of air pollution guidelines uh, that come from everything from the world health organization to the from the UN to the EU and, and trickling down but they're very average based and we're, we've been doing some pro bono work for a couple of communities on the, their relationship with air pollution changes in their local environment and the, and the problems it's occurred and so from from a legal perspective I'm really curious to, to uh, from your background in environmental science and research to understand you know how do you think it'd be better to to bring in almost like different categories of um, air pollution or to at least accept that you know we can't just focus on okay well look 
25 micrograms per cubic meter of PM 2.5 is that's our that's what we want to work to. I can tell you now, we will all get ill if we're constantly breathing that in. But someone will be grossly impacted at two micrograms per cubic meter because they already live a terrible, you know, life in in other ways. And so we have a spectrum of susceptibility that we can't just go from one number in the legal system. So I'm just curious as to how, as a lawyer, how these things may have been approached to understand susceptibility within demographics. You, right, okay. (laughs) I think there's there's, there's two two points I want to make in answering this. And the first is that what how law struggles with with um, issues such as air quality is that this issue of causation and so taking a very scientifically complex topic such as air quality and how that impacts um, each individual person or each kind of demographics health um, rather than the average and then how does the law then deal with that so we've got to tackle the first question first which it sounds like you know, well we, we are we're making huge steps in scientific understanding yes. in able in order that we've we've identified that um everyone in the world and has different susceptibilities um depending on your age ethnicity background where you live what country you live in and um, what your he- your general health is and your genetics and and stuff like that and and then it's translating that into law and so law for, for topics like this, so air quality as well, it's like climate change and um, biodiversity loss, they're international issues. Um, they're issues that impact over a very large spatial scale and a very large temporal scale as well. So air quality impacts can, you know, we're still suffering air quality impacts from years ago. Um, and we're, you know, we, we might have an, a really effective air quality system in the UK but if another country or another jurisdiction has a really weak air quality system, it's going to weaken ours because we will suffer their impacts because of the, the sort of jurisdictional crossover, the transboundary impacts of, of air quality. So it's, it's a very difficult one. And how, how it's done in the UK, which um, I, I don't think was how it was originally intended to be done, but it's how it's ended up being done, is that local authorities tend to take on the majority of uh, air quality management and so they it's managed at a more local level and so this there's a way although this is looking like it might change as a result of the environment bill and brexit they're going to try and keep local authorities really highly involved in managing air quality and this is good but it also presents a lot of challenges because local authorities can't just act on their own and you could be on the boundary of a local authority um, so you need to the local authorities that are adjacent to each other need to work together the local authorities that face the same issues need to work together but also it's not just that but now from what you've discussed it's local authorities need to understand the whole picture and and not just local authorities but everyone who's involved in regulating it so they need to understand um, what the issues are and that the issues aren't just that human health might be impacted generically it's that in this particular region we have a large proportion of people of over a certain age or from a certain ethnic background and you know we now know that these people are more disproportionately impacted and so it's when when looking at uh, legal decisions and guidance and how we're going to take things forward it's actually looking at a much bigger picture than just 
limiting emissions or meeting a certain standard that's been you know given down to us by the world health organization it's looking at a whole load of other issues and so some of those issues might be more economic they might be more encouraging people to to change their behaviors and encourage incentivizing people to to do things in a different way in certain areas and and not in other areas or it's it's very complex but i think you have to look at it from in a hierarchical way from like local to regional to national to international focus on the local as much as you can and um and at the same time, ensuring that scientists communicate with lawyers effectively and lawyers understand the science. And uh, without that, nothing is going to get done. But, but I think the thing is that is the bigger picture thing around um, the law or economics and how economics will choose one thing to do. So, yeah, your cheapest bill cost because that gives you maximum profit, but you're not the person who's paying for the health impacts of that or anything else. And actually, somebody is. And overall, that's that's less... Yeah, that's creating a less good place and that's resulting in more costs and how do you make that is my connectivity point how do we start connecting some of those things around yeah we could build it one way and it'll be a nice cheap build cost and it'll be okay but it will have consequences if we build it another way we'll probably reduce the health budget will overall gain but actually the developer might make less and how do we start bringing in some of those wider benefits and challenges because it's again part of how planning is dealt dealt with things we've segmented I, and siloed mm, things and have we break I, I, that I, through. I think I think increasingly Mark um, pe people are realizing that it doesn't necessarily have to mean um, less return for a developer in the way you might think that there is a, a green space premium attached yeah. to, to, to homes yeah, and yeah. residential areas yeah. and that they, they, their houses sell for more if they're in a nice place it, it, you know there is there is a logic to that and uh, and there's a burgeoning body of evidence to suggest that it that, that it's true and if you challenge the orthodoxy that um, the more generous you are when you're building a place the less you make um, then sometimes you can get a very good result it's understanding what people want now as well so that model might have worked 10 15 years ago but it doesn't anymore and people what people value has changed I and mean, you see that in workplaces and the way that workplaces are evolving and adapting and what people want is they want a healthy work-life balance or most people do and and so they want to work for a company that enables them to have that and it might it might mean that they therefore don't you know they don't have an ambition to earn as much as possible in as short a time as possible what they want is a is a healthy and happy life and and you could say that that's what people are looking for from from their homes, from their workplaces. Is actually they don't want a place that's you know might be a, a high rise in a city. What they want is um, is a, a sustainable home with attached to some green space or within easy access of green space, and that's what people value. So it's understanding from from everyone involved in in the planning processes point of view what what the end goal is, what the what the receptor will want what the buyer of the property or the liver in of the property actually wants from it and if, yeah, if, if you don't yeah. right no one's going to no one's going to invest in it anyway no i think we i mean was an interesting point actually for, and you know as us as a company of planners and designers we've been doing quite a lot recently around uh green space uh, especially within new communities or new residential areas and it's always the same issue it's actually around quality necessarily over quantity you know if you've yeah. got good quality green spaces they mean a lot more than um, trying to adhere to a particular space standard that means you have to have certain amount of play areas or a certain amount of 
uh, green spaces through a development. It's actually the quality and the, and the ease with which you can get to those spaces, um, which, which is, yeah, uh, which is, which is where we are at the moment. And I think the, the other thing I'd say about air quality, you know, it, for us, we're always trying to develop, uh, you know, with our um, developer clients, we're trying to develop uh, places that are well connected, they're sustainable, you know, they're next to uh, important A roads or a motorway or whatever it might be, you know, that's what makes them uh, sustainable. But from an air quality point of view, you know, that's not a great place to be. Uh, and so you end up coming back to, well, you either change the function or quality of the of the connection you know from something that's not car dominated and is more uh, active travel dominated or you move the development somewhere else and the way yeah. things are going at the moment is <laughs> it's a lot quicker uh, to change the sort of quality of the connection uh, given what's happened over the last week than it is to actually find a place somewhere else to build yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm feeling this conversation could go on a lot, lot longer. Um, we haven't even touched on social inequality yet, and that was something I really wanted to address. Perhaps we'll come back to another one. What I was going to suggest was um, each of you just have literally in a sort of a 10-second snapshot is to just reinforce, you've got your last chance to reinforce your, your one priority, your one national priority um, for the long-term change of our urban life. So, Mark, for you first. So, I think it's really about, it's about thinking about space and thinking about... Uh, what we experience and how we can use that as an opportunity to do things differently. I think we're really stuck in a rut of doing things in the same way. And this is a probably once in a couple, two or three generational opportunity to really challenge things and do things differently. And if we've yeah. missed that opportunity, we've missed a really big opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Helen. Um, I would look at air pollution and improving air quality. Air pollution poses a really serious threat to human health, to our built environment, and also therefore to our economy. And, any change will come about through, it'll be through a mixture of remedies. It'll be looking at scientific and technical development, economic incentives and legal controls, and all of these have to work together. Barry, what about yourself? Uh, for me, I think it's a priority around uh, the function of the street and the way that we connect uh, within our cities uh, so that it's much more towards people uh, and sustainable modes of travel uh, and away from our obsession with the, with the private car. Yeah. Ben, yourself? I would um, challenge the idea that people and nature need to be kept separate and seek opportunities to bring the two together so that we can all live in a, in a more stimulating, um, complex and biologically rich environment, um, which will, help, will be good for us and will also help us to take better care of the world around us, which, which will stand us in good stead in the long run. And Josh, finally, yourself? Um, I'm going to be mean and I think we have to uh, accept shame and I think we have to look <laughs> at the social inequalities that have occurred um, with the lens yeah, yeah. of shame and understand it's our job to right these wrongs that are historic, they are systemic, um, particularly people of colour have had to live and dwell and be forced to live and dwell in environments that are dysregulating their systems and leading to higher levels of metabolic and mental disorders and until we in this planning sector predominantly of a white middle class background actually go is this is our job we cannot leave it at the world of epidemiologists to consider oh this is what people do we are gaining the scientific knowledge to understand the causality or very close you know strong correlations of this orchestration this stressor these consequential results and i think it's for up to us to take this on board and lead this change and not expect others to do it anymore 
Well, taking that burden of shame, Josh, I couldn't agree more. Um, absolutely fascinating discussion, I have to say, and, and could go on all, all, uh, all night. Ro- Ro- Robin, Robin, can I just say, in terms of shame, uh, I've been in this virtual pub now for 20 minutes. <laughs> not for me, <laughs> one drink for a round. <laughs> no, I was about to say, I'm more than happy to carry on the conversation for a couple of hours when we can actually drink pints and pubs. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Like there's, there's not even been a fight yet. I mean, what sort of pub is this? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what sort of pubs you go to, Barry, but I will yeah. get the first round in. Can I just thank you all for a great discussion and great spirit? Josh, Helen, Mark, Ben, and yourself, Barry. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for listening as well. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have and look forward to you joining us on the next podcast. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you everyone. Thanks.